13 through 16. For those who don't know me, my name is Zach Stevens. Uh, my wife's name is Erin Stevens. She's the little red-headed woman you've surely seen around. Uh, we just had our first child three weeks ago. And uh, mom and babe are doing great, and she's just a little bundle of joy. So, uh, yeah, we've been running like crazy lately. Hope you parents know how it is, and hope you'll bear with me this morning and show me some grace, because I need all the grace this morning. Uh, and speaking of grace, so Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16 is our passage. So I'm going to read this for us. It says, people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. Let's pray. God, we need your help this morning. Would you speak your word through me, even in my weakness, and be glorified by our worship. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. So, to set the stage for this passage, Jesus had been previously teaching in Galilee, and he's now moved on to the region of Judea and uh, to the, the other areas across the Jordan River. Um, and one of the themes of his teaching at this point has been, or one of the audiences, is he's been focusing on teaching to the disciples. He's been teaching the disciples mainly and the other people that happen to surround them at that point. So, so Jesus and the disciples are running into people on the road, and that's where the teaching's taking place. But in chapter 10, we see a bit of a shift in that audience. So it goes from the disciples now to kind of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are, are kind of establishing this, um, this rhythm of testing Jesus every chance they get, and that kind of becomes the highlight here. The first nine verses of, of chapter 10 reflect this as the Pharisees are trying to test Jesus on the issue of divorce and on adultery. Um, so they're, they're asking the question of whether or not divorce is permitted in the law. But here's the thing. The Pharisees did not care about that question. They didn't care about the answer that would follow that question. They did not care about the issue of divorce genuinely. What they wanted was an opportunity for uh, for them to, to get Jesus in a courtroom. That's what they cared about. That's all they wanted was to get Jesus in front of a courtroom and they were hoping that he would give them that opportunity. And we have to ask ourselves why that is and it's because the Pharisees' hearts were hard. Jesus makes this loud and clear in verse 5. He says to the Pharisees, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. So the mood shifts in verse 10, though, when the disciples ask Jesus about the same matter. Now, they ask this in quiet. It says, uh, verse 10 says that they waited until they were in the house again, and they asked Jesus about divorce. Now, what exactly did they ask him? We don't know. We don't know the exact phrasing of the question, but we can gather that they questioned him genuinely about uh, divorce and adultery um, and they, they questioned him genuinely. They weren't doing it in public. They weren't trying to find a reason to hang him. 
so in other words, the, they truly, the disciples truly wanted to know what Jesus wasn't going to give the Pharisees. There was more to that answer uh, than, than Jesus gave the Pharisees, and they knew it. So Jesus surely answered the Pharisees' question in verses 6 through 9, but there's, there's more to it that, were, that would require more faith and that's where the disciples come and they say, okay, we want to know what's behind all that. So, in verses 11 and 12, Jesus gives them a straight answer. Now, in this answer that Jesus gave, he, he did what the teachers of the law refused to do. So, at that point in rabbinic Judaism, the husband could not commit adultery against his own wife. It just wasn't a thing. He could commit adultery against uh, another husband by infidelity with his wife, or the wife could commit adultery against the husband, but the husband could not commit adultery against the wife. So Jesus comes in here and says, yeah, that's not the way this is going to be. Jesus breaks the mold that was previously set by those same teachers of the law. And this is a big deal. We're not going to camp on that matter specifically, but this is a big deal because Jesus knew that the disciples were ready for this knowledge and the Pharisees weren't. Could you imagine how it would be if the, if the Pharisees had heard that? If the Pharisees had heard that, okay, I'm going to break the mold here. This is, you're not seeing this the right way. That would have been a lot different. But the, the disciples' hearts were soft. They weren't like the Pharisees. They were soft. They were moldable. They were ready to take whatever Jesus said and run with it. They were ready to follow. And that's what we're going to see in our focus text this morning. So let's go. Verse 13 kicks off our text. It says, People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. So in that day and age, uh, it was Jewish custom to bring your children to a rabbi to be blessed by them. Um, it could be, the bringers could be, mother or father, sister or brother, uh, doesn't matter. That was just a thing. It was, it was customary for Jewish culture. So we're not going to focus on that. But the second half of that verse is the, uh, that's the meat. It says, yeah, we're talking about the, the disciples rebuked the children. So how could the disciples possibly rebuke the children? Did the disciples just hate kids? Is that what's going on? Uh, clearly not. Uh, but let's put ourselves in their shoes. So imagine we are the disciples of Jesus in that day and age. He has a sizable following at this point, and there are also many who wish him harm. Like that's clear when we read the scriptures at this point. There are many who are against Jesus. And recently, Jesus has been dealing with difficult issues like we just saw earlier in this chapter of keeping the Pharisees and the scribes at bay. And now, in the middle of all this, people are going to bring their children to him and exploit him for a blessing. Don't they know he has better things to do? He has more important issues to deal with? So it's not really all that outlandish for us to, for us to see uh, this attitude by the disciples. It simply looks like the disciples are showing a lack of spiritual immaturity of a, a lack of I'm sorry a lack of spiritual maturity a lack of spiritual sensitivity and we're never guilty of that right uh, we're we're never guilty of that of course but even still we are blessed with the incredible gift of hindsight so we know that disciples have rebuked the children and we also know that Jesus is about to follow that rebuke with his own rebuke against the disciples so verse 14 
When Jesus saw it, he's talking about the disciples rebuking the families who wanted to approach Jesus. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So this verse is especially noteworthy because this is one of the two times in Scripture that Jesus is referred to as indignant. Uh, The other one was regarding the man with the shriveled hand in the synagogue. You remember that? When the Pharisees called out Jesus and said, Who are you to heal on the Sabbath? He was indignant with the Pharisees. So now he's indignant with his own disciples for rebuking these children. Very interesting. So we really need to tune in here. Um, And what Jesus says next is sobering. This is a strong rebuke, but the meat of the the rebuke, the main part of the rebuke, is not about the disciples' error. It's about who they've wronged. It's about the children that they have wronged. The only bits of actual instruction here for the disciples is found when Jesus says, let and don't stop them. He says, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So the little children are wanting to approach Jesus, and the only ones that are standing in their way are his disciples. So what Jesus says at the latter half of verse 14 and 15 is groundbreaking. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, this likely came as a shock to everyone who heard except for one group of people. That is the disciples. So where this took place in Mark, this is not long after Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. The disciples are right in the middle of that. And in the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, he, he preached the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. That should sound pretty familiar to the disciples, that idea of receiving the kingdom of God like a child. And it should sound pretty familiar to us because Brother Sid just brought this text to us a few weeks ago. So let's look at Matthew 5 real quick. I'll read this for us. You can turn there if you want, but we're just going to be there for a minute. Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, for your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when we look at this text, does it sound like Jesus is telling us that the kingdom of heaven is only for the happy? Is it only for those who live in comfort? Is it for the proud? What about those whose bellies are full? Is it for those who show no mercy, who abide in impurity, who stir up trouble? Is it for those who face no persecution, who are highly esteemed? No, the kingdom of heaven is only for those who need God. The kingdom of heaven is only for the weak. 
And this world tells us that weakness is the problem. And this world tells us, you know, just, just pack your life full of more self-help books. You need some more self-help. You need to take care of yourself more. Or, or you need to feel better. You need some feel-good sermons in your life. But Jesus is telling us here that weakness is not the problem. He says that all the other stuff that we try to take with us to the cross, that's a problem. All the other things that we say, well, God, okay, sure, I've got your promise of salvation, but I've also got this. Let me bring this too. This is going to give me a, a better seat with you, or it's going to make me more comfortable. So imagine the child. The child approaches their father and mother in need, and they expect them to come through for them. The, the mother or father is always going to provide for their child, right? Um, so what if the, let's say, the, the child approaches their parents, and they know, and their parents know, that they are fully dependent on them. They're fully dependent on their parents. So when we come to God for the first time, we usually come in desperation. We come in great need for God. We realize finally how much we need Him. We're fully dependent on Him. But do we grow out of that dependency? Do we grow out of that dependency on God? Do we forget how much we need Him? We are all fully and totally dependent on God. We are all dependent on God. I don't care how you file. We all need God so badly. If there's breath in our lungs at this moment, it's only because God put it there. It's not because we put it there. We we don't have that power. God said, yes, I'm going to grant you breath for another second. We're all fully dependent on Him. But, there has to be a but here. Being totally dependent on God does not make you his child. Just because you need God to keep you alive, to to sustain you for the rest of your life, that does not make you a child of God. Whether or not you realize you're dependent on him, you are. And we can all agree on that. But that still doesn't make you a child. So what does? A child of God approaches him with empty hands because he knows that he has nothing to give. That's what that song we just sang was talking about. Uh, One of the lines from that song was, Truth is, I'm weak, no strength to fight. That is what the child of God possesses. That's the only attitude that child can have. A child of God only has the burden of sin and utter weakness to offer the Savior. And guess what? He takes it. He takes the deal. He says, out of an abundance of grace, yes, I'll take your burdens. Yes, I'll take all your weakness. Yes, I'll take your sin. I'll give you an abundance of love and grace in return. Yes. So there is nothing that we could possibly bring to the table that would make us more fit for salvation. There's no amount of good morals that can earn us any kind of standing with God. There's also no amount of knowledge that could bring us closer uh, to salvation unless it's, a, it's a, no, a saving knowledge of the gospel. There's no seminary degree that can earn you a seat closer to God. Do you think that the thief on the cross had time to swing by and get a doctor of ministry before he approached the pearly gates? Well, surely he had a basic understanding of the doctrine of sanctification, right? I mean, at least he had that. No, all he had was this. I'm here because the man hanging next to me on the cross named Jesus told me I could come. That's all he had. And that's all we have too. 
Only the blood of Christ alone can earn us a seat in heaven. One of my favorite worship songs right now is called Good and Gracious King. And the first line to that, uh, to that song is, I approach the throne of glory. Nothing in my hands I bring but the promise of acceptance from a good and gracious king. So the child of God comes to him with nothing but his promise. There is nothing left to bring because all that child knows is sin. That's all he knows. So when Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those children who are seeking his touch in Mark 10, he's not telling the disciples a new thing. He's simply reminding them of what they were already taught. So the most significant portion of the rebuke here is the one that is unwritten, the one that the disciples realized that they knew better and they've missed it. They've missed it. And we do this all the time, even if we have received the kingdom of God with empty hands at one point. We still try to go back and say, well, I'm going to bring this thing from the world with me. Well, I'm going to bring these financial fruit. I'm going to bring that with me. I'm going to bring a deeper knowledge of the scriptures. I'm going to bring a little more tradition, and that's going to earn me a closer seat with God. I'm going to bring a little more of my service because, you know, God loves service. But that's not what it's about. That's not what being a child of God is. Right now you may be thinking of a passage in Hebrews 5, and I hope you are. Uh, That passage in Hebrews 5 seems to potentially contradict this one. This This is kind of the opposite of what we're saying here, so it seems. But let's address that real quick. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 says, We have a great deal to say about this. And it is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with a message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature. For those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. So do these passages contradict each other? We know that they don't. Um, But the point that's being made in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 is that laziness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Ignorance is not a fruit of the Spirit. The true child of God will, will grow wise. They will mature. They Through the process of sanctification, they'll become less like themselves and more like God. But they're still children. They're still children of God. They're they're still fully reliant on God, and they trust that. So in Mark 10, Jesus isn't disagreeing with what would later be written in Hebrews 5. What he is saying, though, is that if the child isn't raised on milk, we're talking about the milk being the main things of the faith, the gospel is first and foremost. If that child isn't raised on milk, then nothing else in the future matters. There's nothing else that they can add to their lives that would earn them a seat before God if the milk's not there. So I've got a newborn at home, so this is especially relevant to me. If we were to just take milk out of the equation. We just throw the milk out and start feeding ribeyes every meal. How well would that go? She doesn't have any teeth. Like, that's not going to go very well for a lot of reasons. 
But it's only because she's on the milk now. She's building the foundation on the milk that she'll be able to eat a ribeye later. So that milk has to come first, and it has to be held on to. So what's being said in Mark 10, what's being said is this. The gospel is everything, and there is nothing else that we can bring to the table that would fix our posture before God. If our faith isn't built on the foundation of Christ and his gospel, we are missing it. The only thing that we can bring with us to the table is his promise of salvation. That's all we've got. And that promise is not contingent on how how spiritually knowledgeable you are. It's not contingent on your age. It's not contingent on your, your wisdom. It's also not contingent, though, on how wretched of a sinner you are. Because here's the thing. We're all wretched. We are all sinners, and all sin is in complete contradiction to God. We're all sinners. Romans 3, 23 through 26 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as the mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time. And get this, so that He would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. We are justified by Him alone. There's nothing else that we can bring to the table. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's Christ alone. You may be wondering this morning how you, how you get that access to Christ. How, how do you get to that point of salvation. Well, you need to take hold of the gospel, and that is that the man, Jesus, the Son of God, came to the earth and lived a perfect life. He lived a flawless life. And if you're wondering how good you've got to be to earn yourself a seat with God this morning, it's, it's very simple. It's not easy. It's very simple. All you have to do is, number one, you've got to have been sinless up to this point. So not even a thought of sin, no, no sin anywhere in your life. You've got to be sinless up to this point. If I'm describing you, once you get done lying to yourself, think about the second thing. You've got to be sinless from this point out. So from this point until you die, you've got to be completely sinless. Okay, number two, you've got to fix your sin nature problem because you're born into sin, because you're born of Adam. So um, until we're born of Christ... We're born again of Christ, and we are still under Adam. So I don't know how you're going to figure that one out. So Jesus lived that life that's required of us, that perfect life. And then he bled and died. He hung in our place on the cross. He paid that debt that, that we all deserve. And he, he died on that cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And he was raised on the third day, which proved that he was the Messiah. It proved that he was the savior of the world. And without him, there is no salvation. There's no hope without him. There's no purpose in life. There's nothing. So if you're in this room this morning and you would like to hear more about that, you're looking at a room full of people who would love to help lead you to Christ. Just approach anyone. Anyone would love to lead you closer. So there's one more thing that we need to look at, and that's verse 16. We're going to look at this real quick. Verse 16 Jesus says, after taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. 
So after all this, the chaos of the crowd, the foolishness of the disciples, and the rebuke from Jesus, he takes the children in his arms and blesses them. So the children, after all that, are soft enough in heart to be held by Jesus. After all that. What a contrast to the hardness of heart that the Pharisees possess that we looked at earlier in the passage. The the Pharisees are so hard of heart and it's impossible for them to be held by anyone, especially Jesus. They were calling him a false teacher. How could they possibly be held by them? The children trusted him. The children were soft in heart, like the disciples. They were soft in heart. They were moldable. They were ready to take whatever Jesus said, whatever Jesus had for them, and run with it. And they were ready to follow him. Now, it's not to say that the disciples were without flaw in their faith. Clearly, this passage is uh, refuting that claim, that the disciples were with flaw. But they didn't have much baggage to unpack when Jesus rebuked them. They simply turn from their ways. That's what we call repentance. They turn from their ways and they turn to Christ. And they followed him. That's what he calls us to. So this morning, Jesus is standing, waiting with arms open wide to accept any children that will come to him. I hope you'll lay down whatever is in the way, whatever else it is that you're trying to bring to the table with you and run to him this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your gospel. We are thankful for allowing us as children to approach your throne with nothing but the gift of your grace. Help us to cling to that grace and its giver all the days of our lives. Would you be glorified by it? It's in Christ we pray. Amen.